0: Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Welcome back to part two of my interview with investigative journalist Carrie Gillum. In this episode, Carrie discusses her newest book, The Monsanto Papers, and the story of Lee Johnson. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And please leave comments. I think people are getting more aware now about what they eat, but I think most people just eat for what tastes good. You know, seeing patients every day, you know, they're eating what tastes good. They're not really thinking about what they're putting in their bodies and making the connection, unfortunately, to you know, sickness to what they're eating. A lot of people feel that they wouldn't sell it if it was bad for me.
1: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. Isn't that the constant struggle? You know, I've, I have three kids. So I know the constant struggle about, you know, they just want what tastes good, right? And what tastes good is often that fast food burger or fries or whatever, you know, they're loaded with the sodium and the additives and all of the you know, terrible things that addict people really to sugars and all of these things that are bad for us. You're right. I mean, but but eating is, I mean, the food that we consume is is foundational to our health. So what you're putting in your bodies is is definitely sort of the primary factor in in are you going to be healthy? How strong is your immune system? Are you going to be able to fight off disease um, if you're putting trash in your body you can't expect to be healthy you know you,
0: you mentioned before that glyphosate and there's a lot of different chemicals but glyphosate in particular is a chemical chelator and one of the and uh one of the things it chelates is calcium is there any studies that show that uh that it's related to osteopenia or osteoporosis by the amount of uh glyphosate or different chemicals that we put in our body. And then of course the chelates, manganese, copper, zinc, and the zinc we need for our immune system. So we we have a lower immune system. So maybe that increases our risk of getting an infection. Has there been any studies that you've come across or any writings that you've seen on that?
1: The the most well-known I guess are the ones that have really looked at this chelating impact um, are studies out of Sri Lanka. That uh, that tied this to um, some kidney disease there that they were seeing um, high levels of kidney disease and uh, that that study you know was very controversial um, a couple of studies sort of a series that was done very controversial um, the scientist was you know roundly attacked and harassed and criticized by uh, industry and as have the scientists who've done a lot of this work um, so. That's hard for me to weigh in on. Uh, I I really want to see a lot of research before I sort of sign off and say, okay, that looks like that's pretty well-established, that that's valid science. Um, But yeah, there are people that are looking at all of this. But uh, the weight of evidence, particularly with glyphosate right now, uh, really shows a carcinogenic impact, particularly with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, There are a lot of studies that see an impact in the liver, um, different organs, but primarily in the liver with glyphosate. Uh, And there's an increasing amount of science that's showing um, that glyphosate might act as an endocrine disruptor. Um, There was a recent study out last year that said, you know, it looks like it meets maybe eight of 10 sort of characteristics of an endocrine disruptor. Um, But then there are scientific studies that say, you know, absolutely not. Is not an endocrine disrupting chemical. Um, so there's still debate about all that sort of thing. So I can't weigh in on osteoporosis and glyphosate, unfortunately.
0: So they add surfactants to to glyphosate. I guess when they're making roundup or different chemicals, uh, these these herbicides, why are they adding these surfactants and what what do they do? and are they even more toxic? to our cells and glyphosate alone?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good point to bring up. Um, Roundup, yes, does use something called a surfactant and these essentially are supposed to be sort of benign um, additives that help make glyphosate more effective, that help get it into the leaves of the plant, stick to it here and be absorbed into the plant where it can do its work and kill the plants. these surfactants um, are supposed to be safe. Uh, they, you know, the EPA has said, you know, these are safe and glyphosate is safe. So we're just going to assume that when you put them all together, they've got to be safe. We're not going to worry about it. And that's been sort of a deep flaw of the regulatory system and regulatory oversight for decades, because the EPA never required long-term studies about the impacts of the actual formulations. Actual Roundup that was being sold. They uh, only required these in depth long term studies on the active ingredient glyphosate. And what many researchers have found, including our US National Toxicology Program, is that these formulations are more toxic than glyphosate by itself, that there is a synergistic um, effect and impact. And one of the primary surfactants that Monsanto was using. Uh, was actually banned in Europe, because it was found to be so toxic, um, and so dangerous. So, you know, was that P O E A, P O E A, right. So, um, you know, and there's a, there's an email that I have uh, from Monsanto, um, in the EPA communications, this was a few years ago. And I just found it astounding. But the EPA is writing to Monsanto saying, you know, okay, we we need a list, because this is People are starting to really ask about these surfactants and these questions and Europe is banning it and all of this. So the EPA wanted Monsanto to provide it with a long list of the surfactants that they had been using for like the last 40 years. (laughs) Because the EPA didn't You know, my question was, shouldn't the EPA know this? I mean, they've allowed these products, they've approved these products in the market and they're just now in 2016 asking Monsanto, hey, what have you been using? since 1974. Um, I just found that astounding. So talk about
0: uh, Dicamber, you know, combining glyphosate with dicamber. And is it still, com- is it still available out there, uh, dicamber? And because there's been some very significant uh, side effects associated with it.
1: Yeah, so dicamba, again, when we spoke earlier about weed resistance and uh, how farmers who were using glyphosate, Roundup Ready crops, uh, how weed resistance really became a huge problem. So what the companies have said is the solution is just to use more weed killers. So what they came up with was let's combine glyphosate with this weed killer called dicamba and let's genetically alter crops, again, a new line of crops that are genetically altered. So you can spray them directly with not only glyphosate, but you can spray them directly with dicamba. You can spray them with this mixture of dicamba and glyphosate. And again, the weeds hopefully will die and the crops won't. Um, The problem with this is that dicamba uh, has always been a very volatile herbicide, meaning that it doesn't like to stay where it's sprayed. Uh, it can um, move, you know, in warm and, and uh, on the wind and, and warm conditions uh, helps it to volatilize and to move off target. And so this is a huge problem as more dicamba is being used in farm country on genetically altered crops that are designed to be sprayed with it. You have all of these other crops that aren't, you know, you have orchards, you know, peach or growers and you have you know watermelon and you have vineyards and grape growers you have all of these people who are growing things other than genetically altered crops and when the dicamba drifts or moves it you know damages or wipes out their their crops their production and so it's been a huge problem and you know hundreds of farmers have sued now over this and saying you can't be spraying the stuff like this you know, directly overgrowing crops because yeah, maybe your crops will be fine, but you're wiping out my crops. And, um, it's been a real problem. I did a story for the guardian, um, not too long ago, because again, we got emails, sort of the bulk of my work is based on, you know, internal documents and freedom of information documents, but we got all of these communications, uh, where Monsanto and BASF essentially are talking amongst themselves and monsanto is predicting that this exact thing will happen that you know dicamba will damage all of these farm fields and gosh that'll probably encourage more farmers to want to buy their seeds because you're going to want to protect yourself so you're going to want to buy and grow monsanto's special patented gmo seeds um, rather than something non-gmo because if if you're not you're going to get wiped out
0: And is it still being used today, dicamba?
1: It's still being used today. Yeah, there have been several court challenges. Uh, There was a court finding that the EPA had uh, approved these dicamba herbicides. These new ones illegally had not followed the proper steps and needed to pull them off the market. The EPA didn't want to do that and did numerous maneuvers and dicamba is still on the market.
0: And how about actresses? Atrazine, what is that used
1: for? Atrazine, again, is another weed killer. <laughs> These are all the top hits of weed killers, I guess. Uh, you know, it's been found to have uh, particular, particularly harmful reproductive impacts. Um, it's an older herbicide. Uh, it's one that we find quite often in water, uh, in particular. So it's been a big concern. Uh, there's an interesting story about a scientist uh, who Syngenta, another big chemical company, agrochemical company, had hired this, this academic scientist to study atrazine and, and to understand, you know, is this harmful? Is this potentially damaging to humans or to the environment? And they wanted his assurance that it was fine. And instead, he did his work and his research and came back and said, no, this is this is bad this is a problem and uh, they then spent years tearing him down trying to discredit him, harass him ruin his reputation um, It's been a whole story, a whole saga that's been been uncovered and written about in different magazines and press but you know it's atrazine is, is a top chemical used in agriculture right now and it's again something that is not very helpful to our health
0: and let's talk about this about seeds. How is it possible to be able to patent seeds?
1: <laughs> well, the court has agreed, you know, that these, these things don't happen in nature. When you're taking DNA, you're, t- you're doing transgenic work. Uh, this doesn't happen in nature. This is unique and this is proprietary and these companies have developed this trait, this genetic trait, and they can patent it. And then they can license it. And, you know, that's what Monsanto is, been able to do is license uh, their traits. It's a whole business unit for the company, uh, the licensing of genetic traits. And what happens
0: when the seeds blow onto the, the neighbor's property, the, na- the neighbor farmer and they get sued, what's that all about?
1: Yeah, that, that, was, this, that was a whole nother problem that came out with this is that pharmacy didn't want to make use of these genetically altered seeds, didn't want to pay the premiums and Sign the agreements that said that they would only use these seeds for one season, uh, and they wouldn't, you know, save the resulting plant and, and then have seed that they could then replant, um, as is a traditional farming practice. Uh, what they found often was if their neighbor was planting these seeds, or, uh, you know, a, a supplier of, you know, there's there's contamination. It's very easy um, for these GMO plants to contaminate neighboring fields. And you've seen multiple examples And what Monsanto would do, is send investigators out into farm country to make sure that only those people who had signed agreements and and purchased their seeds and paid those special prices were growing them. And if they found any hint of contamination or a farmer who had these special GMO crops growing in his field, they would sue the farmer. Uh, And many farmers protested and said, we had no idea this was growing. You know, this must have somehow contaminated my field. But uh, these were hundreds of farmers that were involved in litigation like this.
0: So how did these farmers protect themselves against the wind blowing seeds into their farm?
1: Well, it, you'd have to talk to these different <laughs> farmers. But a lot of them just ended up paying, you know, paying the money. Some farmers, and uh, you know, said that their livelihoods were ruined by these lawsuits that were brought by Monsanto. But you know it's interesting to note that Monsanto had, uh, there were some research stations where Monsanto was uh, exploring Roundup Ready wheat uh, and growing experimental wheat uh, in the Northwest. And when they shut down their project and decided they weren't gonna grow Roundup Ready wheat anymore and shut that down, uh, what we found was that neighboring fields were contaminated. And this Roundup Ready wheat, uh, that was supposed to be contained and managed and monitored uh, the company Monsanto couldn't even keep it contained itself you know that it was contaminating other farm fields that talk
0: that brings up to desiccation when with wheat explain what that is and why is that used
1: desiccation is a practice uh, by farmers in which they want to dry out or you know prepare uh, a crop for harvest. Uh, maybe the damp, they have damp and cool conditions and their fields aren't drying out evenly or uh, they want to accelerate the harvest uh, you know, time for some reason. And so they can spray glyphosate directly over their crops just as they are about ready to harvest them and it will kill or dry out the crop. The, the grain is already there, the grain is made. Um, so they will dry this crop out and then they can go in and they can um, harvest. And this is a practice with a lot of different crops. Um, Monsanto had a really nifty little sort of slick black brochure that they would give to farmers, um, you know, hailing all the benefits of this, of this trait or this technique. But again, what you see when you spray directly over a crop right before harvest, like wheat or oats or something like that, you get pretty high residues of that weed killer than in your flour, you know, in the instance of wheat or in your oatmeal um, for oats. So this has been a problem. The residues have been documented. They've been documented. They've been pretty shockingly high levels um, that have generated a lot of concern. So we started to see grain handlers tell these farmers, particularly in northern areas, uh, you know, of the U.S. or in Canada, we don't want you to do this anymore. Consumers are onto it. They don't like it. Bad idea. Don't do it anymore. So you're hopefully seeing this practice decline a bit.
0: Now, there's certain foods that are considered health foods, like ed- you go to a Japanese re- restaurant, edamame, uh, you take vitamin C, the vitamin C, it could come from corn, uh, high fructose corn syrup, not necessarily health food, but to sweeten things. Uh, w- what should people do to try to protect themselves?
1: Yeah. Well, if you really want to avoid pesticides in your food, I mean, again, there there aren't a lot of options. I mean, trying to go organic, which is sort of the certified program for growing food without synthetic pesticides, you know, and with other practices that that uh, qualify for the organic standard. I mean, that's where you want to put your interest if that's your main concern. Um, the organic standard is really the only thing we have now um, that. Buying non-GMO, yes, you can buy. But wheat is non-GMO, so you can get something with wheat in it, and it can be non-GMO. But if that wheat has been desiccated with glyphosate, you know you're going to have glyphosate residues in that wheat product, uh, whether it's non-GMO or or not. So really, the organic way is the only way to go to avoid pesticides. Um, you know, getting to know your local farmers. I guess I've got a farm not too far from where I live and they deliver every Tuesday morning, um, you know, eggs and milk to my door and that sort of thing. Not everybody has that luxury. <laughs> I live in Kansas, but um, you know, they're, they're, it's just being more aware, being more educated and being more engaged and involved in the food that you're putting in your body every day and, and feeding to your kids every day. Because as we talked about, it's foundational to the quality of your health and your future health um for decades to come so it's it's really important that people pay attention and do the research and decide for themselves you know what can i do what do i want to do to protect my health? so we want to
0: look for the organic label uh can we trust the organic label and are there still pesticides in in organics
1: but just a lot less it's not a perfect system (laughs) there's a (laughs) lot of ways that pesticides can get into organic foods, unfortunately. So yeah, it's it's not pure and simple. Uh, you know, for instance, we still you know, when you put fertilizer, you're spreading uh, chicken litter or you know manure that's basically being used as fertilizer in organic production and organic farms. Uh, that chicken litter might be coming from chickens who were fed GMO grain, you know, and there could be and there are residues in their uh, in their manure, and the residue gets into the, the soil and the food. So again, we are awash in pesticides in our world. Uh, it's we don't have a perfect system. We haven't had a government or regulatory structure that is focused on trying to reduce pesticides that has acknowledged the impact that they have on our health. Hopefully, that's starting to change. Um, you're seeing you know newer and louder voices. I think. Um, and awareness is growing. The Biden administration has said they want to take a harder look at the EPA regulation of pesticides and other chemicals and, and take into account greater account the impacts on human health. Um, but we don't know how that's going to play out yet. So personal accountability, involvement and in education is critical.
0: Do we have any senators or congress that are true heroes fighting for this cause or not really?
1: I, you know, I would have to say not really. But you know, you you can find a few every now and then who speak up and say, yeah, I'm on board with that and want to. But you don't see leadership in the, you know, in the House or the Senate really, who's pushing something through on this. Um, maybe it's because you know the newer and better educated or the more junior, you know, members of, of Congress. But again, we need to have. Consumer awareness, taxpayer voices—if uh, we're ever going to make change happen.
0: Before we were talking about, can we trust organic? If it says 100% natural, that's not organic.
1: No, that's not organic. No.
0: Did General Mills and Quaker Oats get in trouble for for that a number of years ago?
1: There, yeah, there've been all sorts of sort of labeling litigation that's happened about you know what are the claims that you're making on your on your cereal products or snacks or other sorts of things. Yeah, but uh, yeah, (laughs) a lot of uh, potholes for consumers to dodge, I
0: think. How does it get into watermelon? How does these chemicals get into watermelon?
1: You know, if it's in your water and it's in your soil, if it comes down in rainfall, I mean, is there any way to avoid getting it in watermelon apples? You know, I spent some time in Uh, Florida and talk to citrus growers uh, you know and you have glyphosate and other pesticides in your orange juice I mean the levels of pesticides showing up in oranges and orange juice something you think is so healthy uh, is just insane you know and they told me gosh if consumers knew they would be outraged Um, so
0: let's talk about let's turn our attention to cancer there's been a lot written on cancer. And, and in fact, in your book, uh, it's one of the subtitles of your first book of, is cancer. And then we're going to get into your other book in, in a minute. Uh, the, the WHO, who knows if we can even trust the WHO anymore, but the WHO now classifies uh, uh, GMOs as a class two carcinogen. Can you explain that? And what's a class 2A carcinogen?
1: Well, I don't know if they classify GMOs as a a carcinogen. Um, In 2015, they classified glyphosate.
0: Glyphosate, I'm sorry, I corrected. Glyphosate, Uh, not GMOs. They
1: classified glyphosate as a probable human carcinogen. And uh, they said there was a particular association to non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And... The industry promptly attacked uh, IARC. This is the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization. And their job, which has been for years and years, this is a group of scientists that are independent, not part of the industry, and they come together and they examine widely used substances and try to determine if there's a carcinogenic potential associated with these. They're not a regulatory body, they're merely a scientific body uh, that is considered sort of gold standard of independent cancer experts. And they have experts in epidemiology and toxicology and all sorts of things, look at published peer-reviewed literature over mi- that has taken place over many, many years and then they talk about it and they weigh it and they determine what the data tells them and then they come up with a classification. And so in the... In the case of glyphosate it was determined that it was a probable human carcinogen with a, an association a strong association to non-Hodgkin lymphoma
0: how about all the blood cancers such as leukemia
1: yeah there's been there have been different studies that show um, association like to acute myeloid leukemia for instance there have been other studies and IARC noted this as well Uh, that, yes, links to many other types of cancers and problems.
0: Multiple myeloma
1: is what I was... Multiple myeloma, right. Um, But they simply noted in their report that these epidemiology and other studies showed non-Hodgkin lymphoma in particular, which had been a real problem in farm country, um, non-Hodgkin lymphoma... It was a real rising disease that sort of leveled off in the last few years, but uh, there was a dramatic rise in non hodgkin lymphoma for many years.
0: And you mentioned before about uh, uh, some neurological associations, IQ associations, if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, in particular with this disease, this insecticide called Chocirifos, um, but yeah, there's scientists who look at glyphosate and other, other chemicals and the impacts on the brain and on early developmental um, issues. But chlorpyrifos is such an important example for people to understand how lacking our regulatory system is, I think. Chlorpyrifos is an insecticide that had been developed and sold and marketed and promoted by Dow Chemical for you know, decades. And again, widely used by farmers, one of the most widely used uh, chemicals, insecticides. But the science, for many years, has been building, showing how dangerous it is to young children's brains, um, whether or not they're exposed in utero or shortly after birth, and how this can affect them in a lot of ways. You know, with IQ and um, autism and ADHD and all of these sorts of things, and you know, they, they banned it from household use in the year 2000 because it was shown to be so <laughs> damaging to these kids. But we wanted to keep using it in agriculture. We wanted, our government said, and these companies said, we've got to keep using it. it you know, it's fine in the food and water, don't worry about it. The scientists kept saying, no, it's not. You know, <laughs> it's not fine. Um, the science built up to such a degree that it was scheduled to be banned entirely from agriculture in the US in 2017. The Obama administration, there were court rulings. The Obama administration said, we're going to ban it. Of course, then Donald Trump came into office in January 2017. Dow Chemical gave a million dollars to the Trump inaugural fund and scheduled a meeting with the administration in April of 2017 and sat down and said, we don't want this ban to go forward. And the Trump administration said, okay, we're going to reverse it. The ban will not go forward. And that, to me, is just the most blatant, um, or one of the most blatant, I guess, examples of how politics trumps, no pun intended, you know, public health policy. Uh, It's public health is is rarely the priority over protection of corporate profits. And the chlorpyrifos situation is such a perfect example of that. It's, and it's something we should all be outraged about. And glyphosate is another one. There's an internal memo from the um, White House uh, that we've gotten comments, uh, gotten copies of, where a, a, a strategist, a consultant for Monsanto, is talking to White House people, and comes back and reports to Monsanto that the White House says it's got your back. White House has Monsanto's back uh, on glyphosate. You don't have to worry about regulation. So,
0: what year was that? Who is the who is what administration was that one?
1: that was during the Trump administration.
0: Wow, that's that's something. So let's talk about your new book, uh, the Monsanto papers. Uh, why did you write that book? What, what gave you the, the strength to write it?
1: The first book whitewash was you know, really a, a heavy scientific book. I think a book about the history of the chemical and its environmental impacts and regulatory um, situation and European involvement and um, really about the whole history of genetically modified crops and glyphosate and Roundup. So it, you know, it wasn't a fun book to, to write, it's probably not a fun book to read, a lot of people thought it was really an important book, um, educated a lot of people, I was asked to speak all around the world, including to the European Parliament, to talk about the, the findings and revelations in my book, um, which were based on a lot of government documents. This book, I really wanted to be about what does it all mean to to every man on the street, you know, what does it mean, and what it means is the story of lee johnson um this guy in california and just working guy and he's got two kids and he sprays a lot of you know glyphosate roundup weed killers for his job he's a groundskeeper for a school district and he has this accidental exposure where he's exposed he's doused in this chemical and he develops this really horrible type of non-hodgkin lymphoma and he's told he's going to die in 18 months and so it's the story of of this guy and his family and his battle with cancer and his suffering and the struggle to live and then his struggle to take monsanto to court and to prove that this this chemical causes cancer and he became the first person in the world to take monsanto to court and to expose all of these additional internal documents that show the company you know had had been deceiving people for so long about the risks of its products and so I just you know as I followed the case and I got to know this guy and his family and the lawyers and the evidence and and got copies of all the I thought this is this is an incredible human story uh, that needs to be captured in some way so I wrote a book so it's an incredible it's a human story it's a drama a lot of people say it's like a Grisham novel it's um it's a, it was a lot more fun to write and hopefully more fun to read.
0: <laughs> and he was awarded
1: $289 million. He was awarded $289 million in a unanimous jury decision. Uh, $250 million was uh, considered uh, punitive damages because the jury found that Monsanto had acted so egregiously uh, in trying to cover up a lot of the risks of the products. But Subsequent judges and appeals by Monsanto winnowed that down um, pretty dramatically. And his final judgment was was down to $20 million, $20.5 million. And the, the irony, the just tragedy of that is because he was expected to die so soon, he couldn't be, the judges decided, he couldn't be awarded such a high level of damages because he wasn't going to suffer years and years and years he wasn't going to live a long life he wasn't going to have medical bills that you know went on for for 10 20 years he was going to die quickly so he didn't need a big award is basically what it came down to
0: and he's still alive
1: and he's still alive he's managed to hold off the cancer um, although he's not doing well at all
0: how much of that 20 million went to his lawyers
1: yeah and then you get down to that you know with a lot of this litigation there's a 40% 40% uh, cut that goes to the lawyers and, and uh, you know, and oftentimes there's a, there are liens people don't understand, but oftentimes if your cancer is treated by Medicare or, or Medicaid paid um, by those, by those government funds, a lot of times if you get a jury decision, you get a big award, then you have to pay that money back, um, which is hitting a lot of these plaintiffs in the round of litigation really hard as they're coming to understand that.
0: Talk a little bit about Mike Miller, his attorney.
1: Yeah, Mike Miller is in the book. Uh, These are all, you know, characters that look like they came out of a movie, really. Mike Miller is this, you know, big, loud, very gregarious, charismatic, old Southern lawyer, um, you know, who's built, you know, his wealth and his career and reputation on taking on pharmaceutical companies and uh, others. He'd never taken on an agrochemical company. Never taken on Monsanto um, or any anyone like Monsanto. And uh, but he saw this uh classification from the World Health Organization and he thought, you know, there's something here. And he took his firm in Virginia, kind of a small little firm in a little tiny town in Virginia, and said, you know, I think we're gonna take him on. And he filed a lawsuit and filed for discovery. And was able to pry open Monsanto's secret, you know, records and bring a lot of these into a giant database where they could be searched and um, and come to light. And yeah, he was he's a very important guy. And in the book, you know, not to give too much away though, just on the eve of trial of Lee's trial, he suffers a really tragic accident um, that keeps him out of the courtroom. And so he's not able, and then one of his backup guys has a terrible event, and is not. It's just, it, as I said, as I was reporting all this and watching it unfold, I just thought this has got to be a movie, and I don't know how to write, you know, I don't make a movie, so I, I made a book instead. But. How did Lee Johnson find Mike Miller? Mike was advertising once he decided that's what this is. The book also examines this sort of mass tort system, this giant mechanism for bringing, uh, you know, multi-district litigation or mass tort is what they call it, where you have thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of plaintiffs. And this Roundup litigation, for instance, people Mm -hmm. suing Monsanto claiming exposure to Roundup gave them non-Hodgkin lymphoma. There are over 100,000 plaintiffs. Just in the United States, and so this has became this mass tort, and Mike Miller became one of the leaders um, of the mass tort for all of these plaintiffs, um, although not all of them were his clients. So, uh, you know, this is really important, and it's I explore a lot of this in my in my book. It's you know this these plaintiffs' attorneys and call them personal injury attorney personal injury attorneys these People are often widely attacked, and they're called ambulance chasers. And they say they exploit people, and they get this huge cut, and the people get nothing. Um, but what you what you see is, if our regulators aren't doing their jobs, these lawyers are often the only avenue for people who have been injured um, or have loved ones die because of faulty products, medical devices, you know, drugs that you know haven't been thoroughly tested and have terrible side effects, or are these uh, chemicals used in agriculture that cause disease and death. So without a more robust uh, and responsible regulatory system, consumers really have nowhere else to turn other than these attorneys.
0: Mike Miller asked for all these documents from Monsanto. I mean, millions of pages, I guess it is. And they sent it.
1: They did, yeah, there's a, a meeting that I uh, recount in the book where Mike and his team sit down for the first time with Monsanto's people and say, you know, here are all these documents that we want, and they said, you know, Monsanto's, Monsanto's lawyers were seemed very undisturbed and not worried at all and said, you know, we'll give them to you, but you're not going to find anything, you know, there's no, we have no reason for concern. And they did, they ended up turning over about 15 million pages of internal documents. Now they wanted to keep as many of them uh, secret as they could. They didn't want them publicized or part of the court records, um, but the lawyers were ultimately able to get many of them released. And of course, many came to light during the trial and are described in my book, but uh, Monsanto was sure wrong, you know, because it was these internal secrets uh, that caused not only jury and Lee's case but two sub- subsequent trials the final trial where these documents were revealed um, the jury awarded the plaintiff's two billion dollars
0: it's crazy I mean I just I'm just amazed that they released the documents uh, you know I figured maybe they would hide them or whatever and but they released them
1: Well, and, you know, of course, we don't know if they released all of them um, that they were supposed to or that they were ordered to turn over. But, you know, yeah, I mean, they were ordered by court to turn over these discovery documents. um, And they certainly aren't by any means the entirety of Monsanto's internal communications. um, But they are enough to give a pretty big window into um, these years and years and years of what they were thinking, what they were talking about. They show these discussions about ghostwriting scientific papers um, to try to defend glyphosate. They talk about plans to discredit people uh, like the scientists who work for the World Health Organization. They talk about um, you know, colluding or, or working closely with the EPA to try to stop or block examinations of glyphosate by a different health agency in the United States government. Um, you know All of these things that show that they're very eager to protect their product, uh, with very little regard for public health.
0: How does that work? How do they put together this ghostwriting and these front groups and this, this, this whole astroturfing to kind of shame the other side? How do they do that? How, how, how does that work?
1: Well, there are you know, many different strategies that we we saw. Um, you know, They used uh, front groups, they were providing money to organizations that look like they're independent science groups, uh, but they provide money. And then these groups promote the safety and, and tear into or harass people who say it looks like glyphosate causes cancer, for instance. These groups will then try to discredit these people. Um, in my case, you know, there was a plan. We got a copy of the document uh, from internal Monsanto records where uh, they wanted to discredit my book and discredit me, and they talked about um, using third parties again, these front groups, but also getting uh, using Google search engine optimization and getting uh, somehow using things so if people were searching for my name or the name of my book, they would get directed to you know horrible things about things that were written about me that they engineered to be written about me. Um, but these ghostwritten studies and research papers, they would talk about, we need an independent party, a scientist who doesn't work for us. The independent professors? To have, professors, the to have their professors. names on the papers. We'll do the work, we'll do the editing and the writing, but they'll put their names on them and we'll pay them. And you know, they did this, we see in the internal documents, they did this multiple times. It was a Forbes
0: article, uh, Henry Miller. That, Henry Miller, can you explain a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, uh, Henry Miller was an academic uh, who, unfortunately for him, was caught as one of the people that Monsanto was using for ghostwritten articles. Uh, they wanted an article in Forbes magazine that would uh, criticize these this WHO group, this World Health Organization group of scientists and proclaim the safety of glyphosate and stress, you know, that it was it was not a cancer concern. And so they wanted, you know, a third party name and Henry Miller was gonna be the guy. And you can see in the documents where they send him, hey, this would be great if you have this article and here's what it should say. And actually here's a draft of the article. And uh, you see then it's published in Forbes and it's what Monsanto's PR people wrote. Uh, it's... For, from the draft that they gave Henry Miller, is you see that show up in Forbes under Henry Miller's name. So when those documents came out, Forbes, of course, was embarrassed and they removed his articles and, um, but, you know, there, as I said, the documents show many different examples of this. And there was
0: EPA documents uh, with uh, Jess Rowland. If you could just go over that,
1: that email. Yeah, so with Jess Rowland, uh, this really interesting email, um, series of emails, really. Jess Rowland was an EPA official who was in charge of the cancer review uh, of glyphosate for the EPA, and his report uh, came out and, and found that there was no reason to be concerned that uh, glyphosate didn't cause cancer. And, uh, you know, this was, this was after the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Um, so this, this was something that was somewhat controversial, but you see in Monsanto's own documents where they say that Jess Rowland is a friend and that he can be helpful in the defense of glyphosate. And they look to Jess, uh, for a lot of, uh, insider information. And in particular, when they are looking to block this separate federal agency from looking too closely at glyphosate toxicity, they talk about going to Jess and they say that Jess has said he will try to help them and if he can, if he can kill it, he should get a medal. And uh, they talk then about other EPA officials as well that they worked with to try to block this, this other agency, and they were successful in, uh, in delaying this other agency from looking at glyphosate for years.
0: My last question to you and I just want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, what could people do? What are some of the solutions? Can they be can they get screened, get labs? And what lab would they do? Or and also should we label or ban this stuff? What what are some of the solutions?
1: You know, the solutions, I think, are, again, come down to individual education, awareness, and action, and you decide for yourself what that action is, whether it is just changing your diet, or if it involves, you know, going to Capitol Hill, or if it's as simple as, you know, telling your school board, please don't use this on our school grounds, but uh, I think, I think everybody has to see where they are and decide for themselves, but, um, you know, we, we do need to understand better. And I've been speaking with environmental medicine doctors who seem to be uh, increasingly aware and concerned and offering to, to help people understand better, you know, their own chemistry and what kind of chemical compounds they might be uh, contaminated with. And, you know, so there are, there are ways if you, if you care about it and you want to improve your health, you know, you can do it.
0: And if people want to find out more about you and they want to get copies of your book, what's the best way for them to do it?
1: Thanks. Uh, yeah. My website is carrygillum.com. I work uh, for a research group now called us right to know, which is usrtk.org. And I write a lot for the guardian. So you can uh, Google guardian and carry Gillam and you can get a whole list of my articles.
0: Well, I want to thank uh, Carrie Gillam for joining me today. She's a wealth of information you've learned about. Uh, pesticides and herbicides A to Z, and she was very generous with her time. So thank you so much for joining me. This is Dr. Terry Gelb for Open Your Eyes. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy.
1: Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto.
0: Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You.
1: Most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe for You is because it's safe for me and
0: you.